Like, can I just be the friend that says, she is not your friend. Don't do that, girl. Like, can I be that? Can I be the commentator person and not the person that has to flip a table? And real quick, uh, Monica, have you and I met before? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> not officially, no. Wait, everybody doesn't just know Monica? <laughs> <laughs> not officially no Bridget hi hi good to be good to meet you uh live or whatever this is hello everyone welcome to the integrated care podcast from the collaborative family health care association I'm your editor dr Grace Pratt from Great Plains family medicine residency program in Oklahoma City Oklahoma I am joined by most of our co-hosts today including a new one that I'm very excited to introduce to you but to kick us off I'm going to start us the way we always do with our icebreaker question and what I want to know from you guys today is if you could be on a reality TV show which one would you choose and why? Let's kind of go alphabetically today. Christine? Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Borst, former professor, current creative entrepreneur and therapist. And I would hands down, okay, somebody, there are going to be some groans here. I would choose the home edit as the reality TV show, show choice. I am too old to like go on these, advent- I got, I just want to sleep or like sit on a beach. I don't want to do any of that stuff. But what I do want is a team of amazing women to come put my house in rainbow order. That is (laughs) my dream. I love that. My problem with that is I would never be able to sustain it. But for like the 15 seconds when they walked out the door, it would be so pretty. Now I've got to say, I've used some of their techniques. And when you follow the rules, it's actually easy to maintain. When I don't follow the rules... It's not, but yeah, I need them. And not just like a closet in my house. I need them to come in for like a week to my house. (laughs) Thank you. Well, apparently I count alphabet because Bridget comes before Christine and Beachy comes before Force. (laughs) But (laughs) Bridget, would you love to go next? Yes. So my name is Bridget Beachy. I'm a licensed psychologist by trade, director of behavioral health at a federally qualified health center here in the state of Washington. And as far as a reality show, I used to be obsessed with MTV's real world challenge, like the gauntlets and all of those. And I think that I would like to be on that because they have so many fun challenges, a lot of endurance and athletic type events. And then some other ones are a little bit more like mental fortitude. And I was thinking, I feel like I would do well on that show. I don't know. I would love to watch you on that. (laughs) Uh, Naftali. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Naftali Serrano. I'm the chief executive officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. You know, it's funny because I, we're just having a conversation. It was a, a typical Gen X versus Gen Z conversation yesterday um, w- between me and my kids, my teenage daughters primarily, and how I hate reality TV and the um, stars who've become stars for doing nothing in their lives and how they were then judging me as a arrogant, you know, out of touch uh, adult who doesn't understand the value of these um, social media stars that are now the modern iteration of what we used to watch Bridget with the uh, MTV's the real world, right? (laughs) I reminded them that Gen X started the reality TV thing. Right. So 
um, much to my chagrin. So, so anyway, I've given a lot of thought to, you know, how I don't like reality TV. So this is a, a difficult question. We've also had conversations about how they, you know, my wife and my daughters will watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and, you know, yeah, I won't go into my diatribes on those sorts of things, but because I will come across as an arrogant Gen Xer. Maybe maybe it's hitting too close to home. Uh, but I think if there was a reality TV show that I would get on, it'd probably be some sort of competition show. So something like Survivor, for example. Or, you know, the interesting one is that Naked and Afraid. Like, I think that's kind of, like, I'm with you, Christine. I'm too old and too tired to think about, like, being full of bug bites and not sleeping well for a month. Like that sounds ridiculously bad, but it also kind of sounds kind of cool somehow to think about trying to survive, you know? Okay. How about like in a spot and cozy? Like that can be our reality <laughs> show. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and like we see how long until we get bored by it. So yeah, there you go. Okay. There you go. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't even need a million dollars prize at the end. Just no. The competition itself would be yeah, the reward. Literally just five days away at a spa. Cozy. <laughs> Great. Oh, well, you know, I feel like those shows like Survivor and Naked and Afraid, no matter what happened, you would walk away with the biggest sense of like accomplishment, right. you know, that you did something and you survived, but uh, not for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would love to welcome and introduce to everyone our newest co-host and member of our team, Monica Harrison. Monica, would you mind giving yourself a little bit longer introduction um, so that our listeners yes. can start to get to know you a little bit? Absolutely. Um, my name is Monica Williams Harrison. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I am currently in Connecticut, but every now and then you get a little southern drawl out of me um, because I spent a lot of time in North Carolina. So I have been doing integrated care work I don't even want to tell y'all how long because then I kind of out my seasoned um, ability person that I am. Um, but for quite some time, um, and currently doing some contract work as well as some collaborative care um, work with a large health system here in Connecticut. Um, so I am glad to be a part of the team. When I'm not doing all things integrated care, I am corralling my family with five boys um, and trying to keep everybody in touch. Well, I am so happy for you to join us and so looking forward to hearing your voice as a regular contributor to our podcast. Um, but I'm also not going to let you escape the hot seat here. Which reality TV show would you be a part of? Grace, I thought I might be able to slide the question because <laughs> I am a reality TV watcher. It is my guilty pleasure. Um, no, I like say it ain't so. Say it ain't so, it Monica. <laughs> It's bad. I this is a no judgment zone. Unfortunately or not so unfortunately, I like the ones that are real, like flip a table, throw a drink. So I'm not going to do that on the show. I have those tendencies, but I'm not going to do them on the show. But I would love to be on a real high slide show as like a commentator. Like, can I just be the friend that says she is not your friend? Don't do that, girl. Like, can I be that? Can I be the commentator person and not the person that has to flip a table? Yes. Yes. That sounds okay. fabulous. 
well, I will close out by sharing mine. I would love to go on making it with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. Um, it is just a sweet little show where people make these elaborate craft projects and I would love to meet the two of them. And I would love to get to exercise my creative muscles a little bit. I'm sure nothing I made would hold a candle to the people that are on that. Um, but if you need a little bit of a heartwarming show where people are nice to each other and cheer each other on kind of along the lines of the great British bake-off, uh, you should watch making it. It's really a, it just makes my heart happy. Well, thank you all for sharing that little bit of insight into yourselves. We have a great show this morning. We are, we are going to talk about documentation and integrated care, which is especially relevant with the open notes changing deadline coming up. And then also for our special segment, I interviewed Rachel Landauer, who is with the Harvard Law Center for Health and Policy Innovation, um, who was really key in writing a brief from the Harvard Law Lab called Prioritizing People, Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Law Flexibility During COVID-19, which raised some really interesting issues about social determinants of health and um, how providers want to provide help and assistance to patients, but then how that might conflict with some of the laws around healthcare fraud. So we have that coming up too. But before we get to all of that, we are going to share a couple of news and notes in our CFHA minute. Yeah, thanks. So I'll lead us in into the Inside CFHA uh, segment here. As we know, we just take a few minutes here to just uh, clue you in into the behind the scenes, what's going on at CFHA for those of you who are or are not CFHA members. So we'll get to that here in a second. Before we do that, I want to remind folks that Call for Proposals is now open for our fall conference. We're going to have a virtual conference and an in-person conference option at separate times. The virtual conference is what we are putting together now, and the, ver- the in-person conference is, uh, will be put together as we determine conditions and uh, attendance and things like that. So go to our website, integratorcareconference.com, to submit a call or to learn more um, about that. We're really excited about it. It's going to be really, really cool. Uh, in particular, one little item about it is it is we are collaborating with our sister organization in Canada called Shared Care. So our conference this year is actually an international conference. Uh, It's going to be fantastic. Canadians are just fun, nice, laid back people. We need them. Uh, We need their healthcare system. We need their healthcare system ideas. So we're going to be, there's going to be a lot of cross-pollination there uh, between the two. So that's going to be really cool. So here, without further ado, here's Inside CFHA. Hi, everybody. My name is Naftali Serrano. I'm the Chief Executive Officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, and this is Inside CFHA. Great to have you with us here again. We take just a few minutes to give you a behind-the-scenes kind of look at what we're working on here at CFHA, and uh, we've been pretty busy. It's been a, a, the year started off, we hit the ground running. There's so much energy in integrated care these days, and so much that's going on that affects what we are trying to achieve with making integrated care the standard of care nationally. So we're just gonna pick a couple of those things just to talk about. I'm here with my partner in crime, Marta Saucedo. Marta, why don't you say hello to people? Hello everyone. Uh, Probably by now everybody knows me, Marta Saucedo, the project manager for technical assistance and strategic development. And I'm very excited to share with all of you guys who are we working right now. 
Yeah. And just, uh, you've gotten so much better at saying your title, your really <laughs> long title, but it like rolled off your tongue so smoothly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Did Kudos you, to you, me. Kudos you to me. Did you practice in front of a mirror? Or? I did that. And then I actually make some, uh, I kind of write it a hundred times. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> okay right, so well, let's, let's jump in so we've got we've got uh our just medicine team event um martha why don't you tell us a little bit about what that's about yeah actually i'm very excited about that i'm um i have been very involved in that project and also in the group so the just medicine wants to actually get out there and let everybody knows what they're doing and invite uh, people who are interested in these topics to join the team and with that, we're going to talk about a topic that is super relevant right now, which is uh, the vaccines and the community of color. Uh, what are the challenges they're facing? Uh, what are other states are doing? How can we support this particular population, but also providers uh, treating this, this population? So I'm going to bring the aspect from Dane County in Wisconsin, which I'm located. We're going to have somebody from Texas. And I think the other person, I know it's really north, but I can remember exactly the state. But anyway, it's going to be a very interesting topic. And also, we're going to have people from the Just Medicine team giving us more information about what the group is doing and inviting people who want to join. Yeah. And so uh, just as background for those of you who don't understand the title, so we stole the title from... Uh, a book by Dana Matthew, who spoke at our conference a few years ago. Um, it's titled Just Medicine. And of course, the just is not just medicine, as in only medicine, but medicine that is just, that incorporates justice. And the Just Medicine team helps CFHA ensure that all of who we are and what we do um, exhibits that um, uh, value that we have that our care should be grounded in uh, principles of social justice, anti-racism, and uh, should be fully supportive of, of diversity in all its forms. So this kickoff event is, as Martha said, gonna be focused in on vaccination and equity in vaccination, some of the uh, boundaries we have with that uh, currently. Um, and so if you want to hear the recording of that, because more than likely you're not going to hear this until that's happened, if you want to hear the recording for that, uh, you can uh, just check our uh, content website, integratedcarenews.com, and scroll down to the videos, and it should be there for you to uh, check it out. So and yeah, I'm excited. Yes, and we're going to have another very uh, valuable recording that they can actually reach out about an event that's going to happen tomorrow. But when they listen to this uh, recording, it's going to be already posted in our website, which is the policy event. So tell us more about it, Neftali. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things we're working on is, is kind of, I call it like finding our voice. So, you know, we're, we're not a huge organization. We're a very close, uh, small community that's been working for many years on integrated care. So we haven't developed a strong policy voice. Um, and so this year, we're really focusing in on finding that voice by empowering our members to become active, engaged advocates on the ground in their local communities, in their states. Um, with their local payers. And so we're going to have an event to kick off that effort. 
And what, what we're going to be focusing on at this particular uh, event is gathering people into an advisory group to help CFHA learn how can we support, how can we empower, what are the strategies we can use to engage our members on the ground? Because we're not going to like, we're not a big uh, entity like the American Medical Association or a big uh, player with a lot of money lobbying power in Washington. But what we do have, our great strength are those boots on the ground in the local communities that can really make uh, substantial changes and uh, do good education with legislatures, with payers, uh, with key players in the healthcare world in their community, hospital systems, et cetera. So we'll have this meeting. We're going to get feedback from the advisory group about um, how we should proceed with putting together an event. So we're hoping, hoping to have a policy event uh, later on in the year and uh, use that as a kickoff to uh, really create sort of a, a little army of uh, CFHAers who are policy aware and policy empowered to make the key changes they need to make in their areas to be able to foster or push forward integrated care. So again, take a look at that uh, also uh, on our integrated care news site. Yeah, and there's another event coming up. Like we told you guys, we'll be having, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff we're doing regarding screeners and technology. And I know probably all of you know that Neftali loves technology. So I'm gonna allow him to talk about this because his eyes bright when he talks about it. <laughs> yeah, though with screening, it's always, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm never terribly in love with uh, screening per se, but there's there was a listserv conversation at the end of last year. It was a really long, thread. And whenever there's a long thread, I pay attention to it because that means people are passionate about it and probably means we need to talk about it. And email is not a great way to solve these issues or to like get very far. So what we try to do is take those email conversations and do something with them, right? Help our members engage. So this, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to get people together who care about screening or, or maybe working on screening at their clinic, working on protocols and thinking about technology as part of the solution. And in the last five years or so, there's been a lot of companies, some of whom are CFHA members actually, who have developed their various screening strategies, protocols, et cetera, to help uh, facilitate screening, right? So like say uh, a company that sends patients where you can use their tech to send a patient a link on their mobile device, they can click it from their text messages and pops up a browser, and then they can fill in information securely, maybe a PHQ-9, and then it sends it right back and, and populates right in the AHR, right? So that's, that's an ideal scenario that doesn't happen perfectly all the time, but that's the idea, right? That technology can help this. So we're going to be talking about some of those strategies and people's experiences with those strategies, as well as talking about some of the content of the thread, which was, you know, is screening um, uh, all, always the right thing to do in every situation, right? Is it a helpful thing to do, um, particularly, say, if you don't have clinical services to actually do anything about screening, right? And then also just also, I think we need some clarification around screening versus outcomes tracking because in our community, we've had a lot of folks talk about those as the same thing. So for example, part of it was, well, PHQ-9 is actually intended as a screener, not as a tracking tool. And yet we use it as a tracking tool, right? Is that appropriate? Um, when is it appropriate? Is it only really appropriate for certain populations, you know? 
Um, how do we use those numbers? So we want to kind of talk about all of those questions in, uh, in a one hour event. I'm sure we'll have, we'll run out of time. We'll have to figure out a way to maybe extend the conversation either offline or with another event. But at the very least, we'll have a, a time to take a look at some of the strategies that are out there. Um, we hope to have some invited videos of, of, of strategies that people use and then um, have our discussion as well. So, and that's going to happen March 17th. So that's March 17th. For all this stuff, you can always look at our website, cfha.net. And if you scroll down to the calendar, it'll show all the events there on the calendar. Great. And of course, always going to be on Integrate News. Yeah, that's wonderful. So as you all can see, we take uh, members' interests very seriously and try to foster that. And with that, I want to also mention that uh, we started a new initiative this year in which we're giving uh, to all our organizational memberships the opportunity to have a free uh, technical assistant hour at the end of the month. So for those who are organizational members, you probably will get, and you actually already getting an email from Jackie at the middle of each month about this event in which, in which you can register. And then we do that on the last Tuesday of the month. Um, so if you are not an organizational membership, I'll invite you to consider that if that's something that it will benefit your organization as you can have a lot of different cool support. Yeah, I'm excited about that. We already have for our first month here, we have, I think like six people signed up uh, from right. six of our organizational members. Um, and it's gonna be you know, a free for all, right? So you show up and you get to quiz Martha and myself and, also, whoever else is there, share some knowledge with other folks. Um, we found this format to actually work really well. Martha and I do a lot of, of, of consulting work with um, through our the technical assistance arm here at CFHA. And we often will coalesce groups and um, uh, have these open forums that are very technical in nature. Like, how do you do this? How do you solve these issues? How do you think about this? How do you help staff do this? You know, so. That's the kind of very practical forum that we hope this will be for our organizational members. Yeah, and I think one of the most cool things is also that people who come to these meetings, they know what other agencies are doing and they can get ideas uh, or even support or networking. Uh, right now that's uh, due to COVID being isolated. I think the networking is very important to be there and knowing that you have support from other places around the country. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a community within a community. With that, we're done with our Inside CFHA. All right, that's it. Thanks, everybody. Check in next time. Bye. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so let's get into our topic a little bit. We are talking about documentation and specifically around um, the open notes changes that are coming. And I wonder if anybody... Um, would mind sharing a little bit about just the factual what's going on right now? Why is this a topic? What's the conversation that's happening? What are the changes um, that are happening? Yeah, I can jump in, but other people, um, I'm not an expert at this, but other people can uh, join in. So this is a, a, a federal rule on interoperability and information blocking. Um, the start date for it is April 5th. Most organizations should have already um, gotten their IT stuff in order to make sure this happens. But it basically requires uh, that healthcare providers give patients access without charge to all their health information uh, without delay. 
sort of is the, uh, is the quote. Um, we'll put a uh, link in the show notes to um, a nice explanatory document uh, online. Uh, there's eight types of clinical notes that must be shared um, as part of this rule. Uh, consultation notes, discharge and summary notes, history and physical, imaging, laboratory, pathology reports, procedure notes, and progress notes. There are some exceptions and you can look into those exceptions um, on, the, on the website. So uh, one of the exceptions uh, is what they call uh, psychotherapy notes that are separated from the rest of the individual's medical record. This, isn't, this is something that I wanna look into a little bit more closely. It's not gonna apply to you if you're working in an integrated care setting because your notes are not separated from the rest of the medical record. They are part of the medical record, but I'm reading from the website here where it says, for the exception, psychotherapy notes that are separated from the rest of the individual's medical record and are recorded in any medium by a healthcare provider who is a mental health professional documenting or analyzing the contents of a conversation during a private counseling session or a group joint or family session. And so I, I, I'm going to look more into that, but I wonder if there's some issue there around um, languaging around psychotherapy notes or process notes, because um, my understanding was that all notes uh, would need to go in. Uh, but that's what the website says. So that's a, just a brief on what's there. And I can tell you that at our organization, at our organization, at the organization that I work at clinically, I work at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill in the family medicine department. Epic has had a little button at the top for a while that says share note with patient. And that is, has always been defaulted to share with the patient. So basically after the visit, they would automatically get my note in their my chart, which is their app they can access on the web or on the phone. So really for a lot of us who have been working with EHR systems like that, um, we've been used to knowing that our notes were gonna go to patients and they could read it right after they're, right after they're done. You can currently deselect that, but I'm assuming that uh, once this rule goes into place, it'll It'll either give me an error message or, or allow me to deselect if there's some particular reason, because there are some security reasons that are exemptions as well, or safety reasons, but that, that will be the default after April 5th. So th that's sort of the basics. Thank you for that summary, Nathalie. Um, you know, this is a, a rule that was passed in 2016 initially as part of a larger act and then was initially going supposed to go into effect this past November, but was delayed because of COVID. Um, and I think it's safe to say that there are a lot of feelings, a lot of big feelings, as we say in my house with my, with my kids around the idea of open notes and sharing notes with patients. And I wonder if anyone um, could share a little bit more about, you know, your perspective of, of what you're hearing or what you understand to be some of the concerns or fears that clinicians have about this. Yeah, I'll go. Like, I, so this is Monica. I've heard a variety of things. Um, most of the times it's clinicians who are worried about what the patient will say. You know, different people have a different philosophy. I, for a long time, have said you need to be mindful of what you're documenting in notes anyway, um, but I know that people have different philosophies around that. Um, a couple of, of clinicians that I know that work in other larger systems, they're hoping to still keep their notes in the exclusion that Natalie mentioned, and their charge that they're going with is what we build psychotherapy codes. Therefore, they are psychotherapy notes and are behind a break the glass um, 
feature that some health systems use and then others don't that are doing integrated care work. So there's still a large pocket of individuals that are kind of trying to go against um, the release of their clinical documentation that is in the patient's um, chart, but behind, like I said, a break the glass feature. Um, ultimately, I actually think it's a good thing. I think that it helps with transparency, and I actually think it will help um, individuals be more direct and concise with the things that they are putting in their documentation um, so that it is, you know, more of a progress note instead of a process note. Um, so that's my take on it. Yeah, that's interesting to hear from you, Monica, that some places you're interfacing with are thinking of sort of hiding their notes behind the glass. Are they, from what you've heard, are they actively like putting the glass or has the glass always been there? So for one system, the glass has always been there. It's like that now. And it, even though it's an integrated care system um, that's utilizing PCBH, for some reason, as their program began, they were shifted underneath the behavioral health kind of larger system. So there's like multiple um, systems within a larger umbrella. And when that shifted over, all of those clinicians' notes are underneath a break the glass. Like you have to have the additional login type situation. So that's always been there. And so they're hoping that's gonna be a little loophole for them. Another system did not have break the glass, but are thinking that like right now their notes are open and shared. But there are some clinicians, because they document very sensitive um, information in probably not the most um, positive light for patients, which again goes back to how you document, they are hoping to create a break the glass because they are billing psychotherapy codes for their integrated care work. So they're kind of advocating the other way. You know, since we're on audio, people can't see that earlier when a minute ago when Monica said it is an integrated system, Bridget threw up some air quotes. And I wonder if you might uh, give those air quotes a little voice, Bridget. Yeah, it's just, you know, we want to be integrated until this is probably a, not for now. I won't go too much into this, but what I see in the field so often is places want to they want parity. They want to be integrated until they have to stay late or they have to be interrupted or they have to be too busy or now they have to be under certain rules. So we can't pick and choose y'all like we're either integrated or we're not. And you better believe the medical system in the primary care system, if they're being impacted by this, or I mean, we're all going to be impacted by this. That's going to impact them with regards to when they work with folks on mental health issues too. So it's not like, oh, hey, now I'm safe, but the whole rest of the system still has to adjust. Uh, I don't really think that's the right approach that we should have. We, we should be all in this together. It's definitely going to cause a lot of challenges. For, and I think it's because of what we're made to do in our field. The diagnosis-driven thinking, which I don't think is helpful to anybody, uh, but insurance and the way our mental health is set up, very diagnostically driven. The way they make you put in stuff about mental status, that's going to be super fun. Uh, and then there are some other things I'll say as a clinician, like stages of change. Working in a primary care center, a lot of the patients I'm working with are not in the preparation or action stage. It's the pre-contemplative or contemplative, which isn't supposed to be this like negative judgment against them. 
it's just a way for clinicians to connect with one another. And so I'm worried about how that would go down. So I'm going to have to rethink a lot of these things that are a little bit more like clinician speak, but I agree with Monica fully and completely that we should always be cognizant of what we're putting into our chart notes. I just worry about the way that we're all brainwashed another air quotes, uh, brainwashed into the system of being so psychopathology driven and some of the things that they're going to like, they make us have in there. So I'm not sure how I'm going to reconcile all this yet. I like the way you language that because I think this, this conversation, what I love about it and what I, what I think about a lot of the things we talk about, about integrated care is that it's not just about the procedure of the notes. The procedure of the notes is important and obviously following the law is important. Um, but it uncovers when we start teasing it apart, a much deeper philosophical issue of integrated care, you know, is this primary care or is the specialty mental health being shoehorned into a medical environment? And when we really are able to embrace primary care, you know, and behavioral health in primary care. And I, I phrase it that way because we know, and we've talked on this podcast many times that there's, there's different models. It's not just PCBH, but to have a real, you know, behavioral health in primary care as a paradigm shift or a second order change, you know, to use our good systems language, as opposed to just the first order, you know, we're, we're just squeezing this into this environment. When we take that squeezing in mindset, that's where a lot of this fall apart happens as opposed to there really is a deeper change um, and a deeper philosophical issue that this is uncovering. I had an interesting meeting, um, a girlfriend gathering yesterday with a trauma surgeon girlfriend and my former mentor who's in specialty mental health. And the surgeon friend said, you know, so many people who I know need therapy of my colleagues or, you know, other people in the field aren't seeking formal treatment because they don't want that on their medical records. Great, I understand that. But then I started thinking, so how does that look then in primary care if they are in an integrated facility without maybe even realizing what's happening, right? They get screened, they get diagnoses on their charts. Like what, what does that look like, right? If somebody is actively afraid of being labeled or diagnosed, getting it without realizing it. And now they have access to all of that. So, yeah. And it, you know, I I'm really conflicted about that too, because I think on the one hand, the, the stigma is wrong, right? We know the stigma is wrong and we know it needs to change. And the way that it changes is by a, a huge mass of normalizing and changing how we're treating mental health. But in the meantime, that's individual people that have the potential to be hurt while that larger societal change is happening. And so, you know, it brings us back to other issues of the importance of consent and explaining what we're doing and clarity of documentation. And um, there was a really good, so this has been coming up a lot on the listserv over the last months and even years uh, for our CFHA, you know, group. And a lot of experts have weighed in. And, you know, one of the things that we need to be careful of, and that comes up frequently and that I work on a lot with my trainees is what really needs to go in the medical record and what are we documenting possibly, or have we historically been documenting that doesn't need to go in there. And possibly a lot of those things that people fear being on their record are things that didn't need to be in there in the first place. And so we need to be careful with our 
words. We need to be parsimonious. We need to be, um, you know, only documenting the things that need to go in there. And then there's that reworking, like you said, Bridget, of how are we communicating with other clinicians? Where are places where we're using jargon that may need to shift? Um, but I also want us to give a, a minute of attention to some of the ethical concerns that arise out of this, because some of the, the questions that people are raising, I don't think are fully from just a place of fear, but also a, a thoughtful concern about you know, this shift in note-taking, the shift in open notes is intended to be patient-centered, to give patient empowerment, to raise their health literacy, to break down some of those barriers between doctors and patients. And the evidence shows that overwhelmingly that is what happens, that it, it is a good thing. And a lot of our fears are unfounded, but there are still some things like when there's a safety concern or when there's an adolescent who maybe is not communicating with their parent, but then the parent has proxy access to that portal. And so I wonder how you guys are thinking about some of those issues around documentation and those ethical challenges that come out of open notes. Well, you know, to my, my, to my knowledge, none of that changes with this. Um, so those are still protected exemptions. Um, if, if you think something in the notes going to put that patient in danger potentially, or if there's some other uh, laws regulating access, like with a teen and a parent, for example, um, in certain states, those are all state governed stuff. So uh, th those exceptions will still be there. Um, I, I think by and large, the, the ethical concerns are what Christine raised around things like, yeah, if, if, um, it, in the, the issue, the issue this with this with your concern, Christine, is that like that stuff is already in the medical record. Typically, they don't need a behavioral health encounter to have a label assigned, and then to for potentially say have that affect their life insurance policy, right? So the ethical issues are around, I think, um, how information could potentially harm the patient, right? So they maybe read something, misinterpret it, or feel judged, or whatever uh, like that, or how having it in their medical record could hurt them with things like purchasing a life insurance policy or um, some other ramifications if that record were released and inadvertently they didn't realize they had this information in there and it got released to an employer or you know, some other agency, things like that. I think those are the, the nature of the ethical issues that um, I think I hear people talk about the most. Um, but again, like I, I would say that the thing, the thing I point to is like that those issues exist now. It, it's really a lot of it's about your organizational procedures around how you handle medical record releases. And then to Grace's point, how you're upfront informing patients about what's in their record and what could happen if records are released um, in certain ways. And I think that this goes so much further beyond just behavioral or mental health. Look at your guys's medical charts. Look what's in there. Obesity, overweight, if you have a BMI, just automatically if 26, that's going to be plastered in there. Uh, all the STD, high risk, sexual, whatever. I had a patient who had had four partners in I think 12 months, she's single. And so she got labeled as like a high risk something. Uh, and she was like, what? Like, I, you know, and, and, but it just was meeting a category. So I, you know, walked her through and was just like, well, it's just, it's a category uh, that 
probably was determined by something at some point, like they're not calling you, like they're not calling you like promiscuous or something, but I see where you're coming from. So, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes out from this. And then if you think about who's getting the mass screenings of PHQ2s, that's like every single medical system and medical system touches way more people than integrated care. Like uh, if you did mathematics of, you have all these health centers and how many systems have PCPs versus the BHCs, this is going to impact medical so much more. They overwhelmingly still see most of the folks that have depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and all these other conditions. So I'm not saying that us in behavioral health, we shouldn't be worried. I'm just saying that statistically, this is going to impact medicine uh, very much so. And I, 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 I always go back, and this has been my thing, and I think Grace's point about second order change is really crucial here. So I think this is an opportunity really to engage integration more profoundly. You know, I think one of the things that I fundamentally believe is that we in behavioral health make primary care better, but primary care also makes us better when we truly integrate, when we take the best of each of us and bring it together. And this is an example of that. So um, for, for years, uh, most people, like what I'm sort of quote unquote famous for is like one video, one YouTube video on documentation that I did in my, I don't know, basement or something uh, like 15 years ago. I can't tell you how many people say, oh, I love your documentation video. I'm like, man, that was 15 years ago, right? And I think what, what that video came from was basically just this frustration with exactly what Bridget was talking about, which is the way we were being asked to document, which is not helpful to the patient. And frankly, I don't actually think helpful to colleagues either. Like it's just completely useless uh, verbiage um, and labeling of the patient that doesn't move care forward. And so I put together a video and said, hey, look, our notes should have logic behind that. And I took a basic SOAP note, we reorganized it in our system to an APSO note. And my training of, of clinicians was, your assessment should tell me what you think is happening with this patient, not using uh, diagnostic language, but using functional language. You should tell me what you think is happening and why you think that's happening. That's what you get paid money to do. You get paid money to describe functionally, tangibly, what you think is happening and why. And, and that's what goes in your assessment. And you should keep in mind that the physician should understand what you're talking about and that the patient should understand what you're talking about. And that assessment should connect to your plan. There should be logic behind what you decided was going on and why, and then what intervention you chose to, uh, to do that day. And then in the subjective, you should only pick the relevant subjective information that connects to that assessment and to that plan. Anything else, you shouldn't be putting in there things just to remind yourself of some random detail. You shouldn't be putting in extraneous information about their history. You only put in the stuff that's important to your assessment and to your plan. Same thing with the objective. You put in the important relevant facts that you need to check the check marks for billing purposes, and then you're done. That's what a good note does, right? So if we write that way, we, we shouldn't be concerned in most situations. There's still gonna be these exceptions, but in most situations, if you write that way, you shouldn't be concerned about a patient reading your note. They should read it, understand it, see the logic behind it, understand why you put the information in there and the rest you just keep in your head.
Thank you, Natalia. Sure. I, it, no, okay. it, it was a soapbox, and it's an important soapbox. one. Get him started about that documentation. <laughs> yes, it's an important one. And you know what I'm thinking as we're having this conversation um, is that something you said early on there, Naftali, struck me that patients have always had access to their notes. It was just harder for them to get them. And the risks of what we have been documenting have always been there, but it was harder for the patient to see it and to call us on it. And really the change is that we, there, maybe it's more likely and I, you know, this isn't going to happen all the time, but it's more likely that patients are going to ask us, why did you say this? And that is a tiny shift in power from the provider to the patient that is so important. You know, it, it's, it may lead to uncomfortable conversations for us sometimes as clinicians. Hopefully it also leads to changes in our documentation practices and that we are documenting in the way that is clear and is beneficial to the patient and um, is all those things. But there always was the concern and there always was the effect on the patients, but now we're possibly held a little bit more accountable for that. And while there is some discomfort that comes always with, you know, the potential of being held accountable or a shift in power, it's, it's critical and really important for our patients, especially our patients who have the least power in the system and who are most likely to have things documented in their charts, um, you know, if you extrapolate this out, if a provider was documenting with bias and that got in the patient's chart and then the patient was able to see it and comment on it and to call the provider out and challenge them on it, that is only a good thing, you know, in that sense that could come from this and is important for us as providers to be held accountable. I think it challenges the system, right? Like it's the beginning of getting us to, to look as a part of the system to look at things differently. And like, I welcome that when we talk about um, things that are in the documentation or in, you know, in the health record in general that patients aren't aware of like, oh, multiple sexual partners and how the patient reads that is promiscuous. The thing I loved about what Bridget said is, I think this is an opportunity for us as clinicians who are working directly with patients to be able to have those conversations. Okay, so it sounds like you're not really ready to begin or quit smoking or you're not really ready to da-da-da. And so on this scale that I use for motivational interviewing, that would figure that, and we start to utilize the language and explain it, then you'll have less of the, what the heck is this in my chart moment. Um, and I, I, for one, and that will take practice, you know, I'm not used to doing that. I've gotten better about it. But I think it is something that will be beneficial and requires us as a part of the system to change the status quo of how we've been doing things. And that's what we're, you know, that's what we're trying to do anyway. That, that's the difference between primary care and specialty care, right? I, I often describe this to people in primary care. We, we have a mentality that this is a collaboration with the patient. And that is patient driven. You know, we're, we're not thinking that we are the change agents. We're believing that the patient has the power and potential to be the change agent and is an equal partner in this uh, process. And I think this is another, I think Grace, your point is, is fantastic. I hadn't thought about it this way, that way, but I think this is a, um, a power issue and we are redistributing power here back to the patient. Um, and yes, it has implications, but um, that's, what we're, what, that's what we should be moving towards, right? A collaborative 
relationship with patients and their families that, that puts the center of change squarely on them. It's, it's not, we are not the change agents. They are, and therefore they should have all the information um, at their disposal to, to make that happen. Now, I will say the one tricky thing that I've had to change with my writing over the years as uh, Open Notes became a thing um, were characterological issues. So, so if in my assessment, the, the sort of the core feature that I'm noticing as part of the patient's um, coping deficit, um, something that we need to keep in mind is personality uh, related issues. Um, so maybe they, they have uh, borderline personality traits or whatever. That's an area where I, you know, I've definitely shifted the way I have to be very, very descriptive um, in, in approaching that because I do think it's important. Like it's important for the physician and myself to be on the same page with regard to, Hey, there's some fundamentally characterological issues. We're going to see that as we engage them with their diabetes and their chronic pain and their depression. Right. And we, we have to be on the same page about how to, how to manage that. Um, th that gets tricky. Well, if we're just about out of time. I kind of want to close this out with this section of the show and thank you for all of your thoughts. And I, my, I think my challenge to any listeners that are following along with us or who are making this shift in their own practice is to, you know, put on your systems hat and think about second order change, thinking about a shift of power, think about how, you know, if you are having concerns about this change to ask yourself how much of these concerns are fear for the patient and how much of these concerns are anxiety for myself um, and to examine and maybe talk with a, a trusted colleague about that because that's the work that that we need to do to ultimately shift to a collaboration and making integrated care not just be collaboration between the doctor or the physician and the behavioral health provider but a true collaboration with the family as well. Um, we are going to go now to our special segment, um, the interview with Rachel Landauer from Harvard Law Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I was wondering if you could start by giving our listeners a little introduction to yourself. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. I am an attorney at the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation of Harvard Law School. It is a mouthful, but we also go by Chilpy. And we're a program that advocates for various legal, regulatory, and policy reforms to expand access to healthcare, reduce health disparities, and promote more equitable and effective health and public health systems. That's awesome. You know, we talk a lot on the podcast about how there's different layers that all really have to be working in concert. Like the clinical cannot work without the accompanying policy and, you know, the financial and operational pieces. And so I'm so thankful for your group and the work that you do. How did you come to be there and specializing in health policy? Yeah, well, and actually, you know, with what, with what you were just saying, that actually really speaks to kind of the, the history of Chilpy too. So we were founded in the 80s um, as the A's Law Clinic, and we were the first law school-based legal services program to serve low-income people living with HIV. And at that point, we were really doing um, direct legal services, so services like helping people to obtain health insurance and disability benefits, fighting discrimination, 
But the issues were so pervasive and so systemic that our mission really evolved over time to focus in on that policy change. As to my own journey to Chilpi, I have been really interested in sort of the right to health and health justice for a long time. And then a few years ago, I sort of zoned in on wanting to use law as the lever for change in this space. And so I went to law school at the same time as I did a master's of public health. And then I happily found my way here. That's awesome. It sounds like you're really well positioned with your MPH along with the legal side to understand both of the pieces. It's hard for me sometimes as a clinician to look at the, you know, the, the breadth of the systems issues that we have and the change that needs to happen. And it can be a little overwhelming. So it's, it's kind of comforting to know about Chilpi and, you know, attorneys like you that are doing this work um, to try to affect change at that larger level. A team effort. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to focus in on this specific um, issue brief that we're going to share in our show notes with our listeners that's titled Prioritizing People, Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Law Flexibility During COVID-19. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more of kind of what's the goal or the background of writing this brief specifically? Yeah. So the issue brief tackles kind of that naughty issue of federal health laws, federal health care laws, that at a really high level are concerned about the ways in which offering free or discounted items and services to Medicaid and Medicare beneficiaries may distort healthcare decision-making and utilization. And what makes that so tough is that these same patients are often the ones that need some extra support. And so one of the ways in which um, here at Chilpi, we work to support social determinants of health interventions and the integration into healthcare delivery and financing is through helping healthcare providers and community-based partners really navigate whether and how various legal frameworks apply. And so as your listeners probably know well, Healthcare is a really heavily regulated field. And a lot of the times, if there's a legal risk or even a perception of legal risk, then it's a lot easier to say no to an innovation. And we really want to flip that thinking and help folks see potential paths forward. That's really interesting. And, you know, I... I appreciated how clearly written the issue brief is and how clearly understandable it is for clinicians because, you know, we get our training every year that's required on the anti-kickback statute and all of these other legal things. I'm like, oh, that has nothing to do with me. Uh, But really when you put it this way and when you think about these different programs and how people may be getting creative or wanting to be creative and innovative in meeting the needs of their patients, it does really shine through and I felt like it was languaged in a really understandable way. So I wonder if you could summarize, and again, we'll share the link um, with our listeners who can read further, but what were some of the key findings that you guys discovered as you were preparing this brief and who might be affected by it? So the brief is focused on, particularly during COVID-19, when health-related social needs are skyrocketing and are so urgent, we're lifting up how we understand where the federal government's head is 
around kind of the intersection of, you know, fraud and abuse laws and social determinants of health in interventions. And really trying to help people understand the possible avenues for healthcare providers wanting to respond. So it looks at some of the recent um, feedback that federal enforcers have provided and says, here's some ways to think about structuring a program that may um, lower any risk of non-compliance and, and get a green light. Awesome. Um, I wonder, you know, what might be some broad implications or takeaways that you think might be important for clinicians or administrators or whoever might be in our listening audience to hear? I think the biggest takeaway is that there are strategies and oftentimes, you know, if you're looking to incorporate certain food supports or transportation supports into your practice that you shouldn't let, you know, the aura of fraud and abuse laws immediately shut that down. And to really take a look at what some of those options are and try to build a program that uh, both meets your patient's needs and is compliant with the law. You know, our greatest hope for that resource is that you know, we're bringing in new champions and that perhaps folks who have been too cautious to really entertain programming in the past will at least take a second look and, and say, let me think about it. I love that. It's that it doesn't have to be an automatic no. <laughs> like, of course, there are parameters and there's a need to be compliant, but that doesn't have to completely stop creativity around, especially I think, you know, you had focus on social determinants of health here and in the context of COVID-19. And there's so many challenges and it can feel really overwhelming. And so it, it's going to take, and it takes a lot of times these innovative kind of solutions to address those. So it's kind of empowering to clinicians to think through. And that's how we're hoping it will be used too. I mean, I think for a lot of folks, so much of the guidance is buried in, you know, across several documents and in high level legalese. And we really wanted to create something that pe people could bring to their administrators, bring to their compliance officers and say, hey, what about this? Does this help us get any closer? Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for the work that you're doing for this brief specifically. I wonder for our listeners, if anyone wants to follow more closely with Chilpi and the types of things that you're putting out, where we can direct them to. That is a great question. So you can always contact us um, through our website at www.chilpi.org. We'll put it in the show notes. Well, thank you again so much, Rachel, for joining me. Um, and thank you for the work that you guys are doing. Thank you again for having me. Okay. Well, it was such a pleasure uh, to get to speak with Rachel. Thank you, Rachel, so much for joining us. Um, we are just about out of time for our show. Even though DP wasn't able to join us this morning, he did uh, send his regards. <laughs> and as well, he sent us a closing meditation for all of us. So um, I'm going to send it to Deepu for that. Our closing thoughts come from Sonia Renee Taylor, who is an author, poet, spoken word artist, speaker, humanitarian, and social justice activist and educator. She's also the founder of 
the body is not an apology movement. This quote is often misattributed to Brene Brown. Brene Brown herself has made the correction. Sonia Renee Taylor says, We will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone for, for joining us. Thank you, Monica, for joining our team, for being here with us today. Thank you, Bridget, Christine, Naftali, as always. And thank you to our listeners. We'll talk to you again next month. Mm-hmm.